there's irony in the fact that the same lies that I had been tricked into believing, when you unpack those lies and ask how that happened, they were based on the same principles of deception that I was using as an illusionist to create illusions on stage. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. And I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. Hey, Lindsay here. I'm so excited about today's guest. I've known Harris III for over a decade, and in that time, I've witnessed him grow and evolve both personally and professionally. One of the things I love most about Harris is the way he intentionally lives his life in pursuit of wonder and purpose. Harris started traveling professionally as a magician at the age of 16. He traveled the globe and made a million dollars by the age of 21, but then a year later, he went bankrupt. Harris then sought out on a decade-long journey to understand the stories we tell ourselves and how they drive all human behavior. Armed with a unique perspective, his career exploded once again, this time as a world-renowned speaker, storyteller, and entrepreneur. Harris has such an interesting story, but more than that, he's an inspiring and authentic human. During our conversation, we dig into the narratives that held Harris back in the past and how all of us can address and reckon with our own scripts in order to fully embrace who we are. We also discuss how opening our eyes to the wonder all around us can transform not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. I cannot wait for you to meet my friend, Harris III. Harris, it is so fun to be with you today on Zoom, if not in person, but gosh, how long have we known each other? Like a decade? At least. Maybe like four or five decades has it been? Mm, that it long? feels like that. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, and we're not know, that old. We're not that old. <laughs> it feels like it after this year, but yeah. Yes, it's been a while. So Harris, for those who aren't familiar with you and all the amazing things that you have been a part of, will you sort of give the audience just a brief recap of sort of who you are and what you're about and some of the things you've done? Oh goodness. How much time do I have to answer that question? <laughs> I don't know where to begin. Uh, most people are interested in me beginning at the age of nine because that's when I got a magic kit for Christmas. I grew up mm. in a small town in Southeast Tennessee. Parents who had a minimum wage jobs. My dad worked at a factory. My mom was a housekeeper at a college campus and grew up on an old farm that was no longer in business. And so lots of farmland, building trails and forts and stuff in the forest and kind of became obsessed with playing baseball every day. And the year I asked for a baseball glove, I got a box of magic tricks. It's the only gift I remember getting that year for Christmas. And that box of tricks completely changed my life. Um, I wasn't very good at anything, including baseball. Uh, and out of boredom, when I learned that first trick out of the magic kit, I, I remember marching into my living room. My mom and dad were watching TV and I was like, gather around. Here's what grandma got me for Christmas. And I, <laughs> I put this little ball in a cup, which was the trick. And I didn't think it was going to amaze anyone. I put the ball in the cup, covered it up with the lid, made the ball disappear, made it reappear. Their eyes lit up. They were blown away. And it was the first time that I remember someone else looking at me with a look of awe and wonder in response to something that I had done. And now I understand that how contagious that wonder was now that I've studied it. But at the time, I just knew it. It gave me permission to believe in this whole new story of possibility. And so I thought, maybe I'll travel around the world and do magic shows for the rest of my life. And so I had a chance to do that. 
dropped out of public school uh, after my freshman year of high school to go on the road full-time. So I started working wow. full-time pretty young, touring full-time and moved to Nashville at 21 and uh, was bankrupt by 22. And that began a whole new chapter of me trying to figure out how to live a more meaningful life and how to sort of wake up to the stories that I was telling myself about who I was and who I was really meant to be. It's been a crazy journey even since that time. So by the time I was 30, I had sort of began to shift my work from away from, not necessarily away from being a quote unquote magician or illusionist, just my work as a storyteller took on so much more and sort of embraced the fact that I was an entrepreneur and started to explore other opportunities. So there's a lot packed in there. There is a lot packed in there. One of the things that we have had a lot of conversation about is like the difference between the idea of magic, which mm -hmm. I was a skeptic of magic sort of <laughs> prior to meeting you, and the idea of illusion. Will you talk about the difference of those things and why a lot of times you describe yourself as an illusionist versus a magician? Yeah, well, early on, I described myself as an illusionist instead of a magician just because, you know, I grew up in the Bible Belt in the South and everyone thought I was this evil person if I performed magic because that was this really bad thing. Uh, that, that was part of the dark side or something like that. And so as, as I got older, I began to realize more and more that, gosh, why do we call it magic? And I had all these experiences, especially once I became a dad. And there's so many stories there even. I remember you know, I set my face on fire doing a fire breathing act uh, at a 4th of July gathering. And it was an accident. It was not on purpose, but I ended up with all these second degree burns all over my face. And I was laying on my couch healing up from this accident thinking, why do I do this stuff? And it's because I had lost my belief in what magic was. I had nothing to sort of ground me and center me. And what was interesting about that same season is as I was asking those questions, I was also looking at the world through the lens of my new son who had just been born, um, Jude. And as I was trying to figure out what magic was, he was seeing magic everywhere. As I was struggling to believe in anything that be, could be considered real magic, you know, his eyes were wide awake to wonder of the magic all around him. And that's when the irony, I think, truly hit me deep down that, wow, it's so fascinating that we call what illusionists and magicians do magic, even though it's totally fake. They're just tricks. But yet we look at all of these very real, truly magical things in the world around us. And then we just sort of like shrug our shoulders in cynicism. We're like, ah, oh, none of it matters. None of it must be real. And um, that's when I really solidified strong opinions around the fact that I'm not a magician. I do have a background as an illusionist who performs tricks, but it's the things that we call magic usually aren't magic. And the things that we don't find very much magic in are the things that are truly magical. So my goal is to sort of redefine what magic is in the minds of people. Mm. I've heard your story before, and I remember at some point early on, you had really good success. I think you, in that snapshot thumbnail version you gave us, you talked about going on the road, getting started, you know, dropping out of high school your freshman year, and then you jumped ahead to 22 when you said you were bankrupt when you moved to Nashville. but. I also have heard the, the the highlight reel too, where you were like, you know, making millions of dollars. I can't remember the whole thing, but I know you you did really well. Where was that part? Was it was it before twenty two or after? Yeah, it was before. Probably when I was about fifteen years old. I remember my parents sitting me down and explaining that I had made six figures that year, and how wow. that was such a big 
deal to them because that, that was more money than they had ever made in two years combined, um, at their jobs. And, you know, no one in my family came from money. Everyone built their own houses. They lived in a lot of our family lived in mobile homes in this really small town of just a few hundred people. And so that, that kind of money, especially at that age, it was just difficult to wrap your mind around. And that sort of continued and getting school, quote unquote, physical school out of the way just enabled me to go tour even more full time and go to more places and make more money, do more shows. So by 21, I'd made a little over a million dollars doing magic. And, you know, when I moved to Nashville, you know, Frank, as you guys know, Franklin, Tennessee, it's like this quintessential American town with the white picket fences and the nice houses. And so I got married that year young at 21 and built a nice house in a nice neighborhood and filled it up with nice expensive stuff and parked two nice cars in the driveway. And I was like, wow, this is the American dream. This is it, right? The problem was I went to bed every single night feeling totally empty thinking mm. like, what am I, what comes after this? What am I supposed to do next? If this is the American dream and I already have all this stuff at 21, Am I just supposed to wake up tomorrow to go get on another tour bus or another airplane to go do another magic show, to make more money, to buy more stuff, to just impress people that I don't even know. Right. And really I realized it wasn't, I didn't, I didn't grow up with a sense of entitlement to things. And so surrounding myself with all these nice things, it took me a while to understand it wasn't selfishness or me being materialistic. It was really a sign of my broken narrative and my identity and my search for approval to feel like mm. I was enough. I was doing everything in my power to maintain and control the perceptions of other people so they could drive down my street, especially my dad could drive down my street and go, man, look at him now. He finally measured up mm. because I was never enough for my dad. And so deep down, it was always this, Hey, do you, am I enough now? Am I enough now? Am I enough now? And man, when you're, when you anchor your identity and value as a human being, in the approval of others, you will constantly reach for the illusion of more and it will never be enough. And so keeping up with the Joneses is basically what bankrupted me. So wow. uh, by 20, by 22, uh, my wife, Kate and I, we'd racked up a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of really bad consumer debt. It didn't include our mortgage or anything like that. And, uh, had to start asking some serious questions about what life is all about. Mm. There were things in there I wished I could write down the way you framed them up. It's so true. But, you know, having worked in and around entertainment uh, for a big part of my career, kind of from a unique vantage point or seat in that I'm kind of in the mental health side of, of the music and film industry, uh, I've seen, I've gotten a lot of those uh, phone calls uh, the, the morning after the Grammys when someone was a little girl or boy who dreamed of being on that stage and they, they got it sooner than they thought they would. And then right after they were like, now what, you know, mm -hmm. they feel kind of let down or is there more? It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And you mentioned, uh, I think you use the words kind of a broken narrative that was driving you. And I do see, and I can relate to it. You know, mine comes through a different lens, but nonetheless, I, pivoted early on when I had elements of my broken narrative start to surface and manifest and create some unhealthy patterns. I identified it, started to reconcile it, but then I got on fire to go help other people with their broken narratives. What I didn't realize in the first probably decade of my career in this space that I was still chasing my own. And it just 
created some blinders a little bit for me fully looking at my own my own story. And I see that so much. And I think a lot of times our talent or just who, who we are can come to us in a, such a pure way. And, and then at some point, there is a broken narrative that can sneak in and drive us and often drive us to success in a big way. Have you been able to go back in your timeline and try to uh, discern uh, when it went from that probably pure, innocent boy to, uh oh, um, now it's on auto control and there's a crash coming? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, quite a few things, honestly. Some of it started to creep in before the age of nine, before I got that magic kit, you know, because I wasn't good at anything and we didn't have a lot of resources at our disposal. Uh, I was, I was pretty consistently getting bullied and picked on at school. And so me getting that magic kit, the reason why that was such a big deal is for, it was the first time that I remember someone being genuinely impressed. And I was like, Whoa, is this it? Is this my time to finally show everyone that I can be good at something? I didn't believe it was really possible. And so that initial wonder and awe in response to my parents, it sort of gave me permission to believe and embrace that narrative where it got broken after that was some of my first magic shows. I remember getting some standing ovations when I was a little kid, not even because the show was good. Honestly, it's probably like, look at that cute little kid in the tuxedo and he's got his rabbit and his magic wand. Like, wow, that kid's going places, right? I want that picture. If you got that, I want to see that. I've got a few of those. Yeah. Um, And so I, I remember how good that felt because I knew my dad was standing in the wings of the theater side stage. Right. And so I remember taking in that applause, walking off stage, thinking my dad was going to give me this huge hug going, man, Harris, you're awesome. That was incredible. I'm so proud of you. And instead I would walk off stage and my dad would be standing there with his arms crossed and he would say things like, um, you know, that wasn't good enough. Or man, Harris, if you're going to take this magic thing seriously, you're going to have to work a lot harder next time. Uh, I remember specifically, I can, it's like a home video in my head, the scene of walking off stage seeing exactly where he was standing when he said, if I was the person who booked you for this show, I wouldn't book you again. You've got to put in a lot more work than you did on this particular performance. And now with wisdom, looking back, I understand through my dad's own broken narrative, that was him trying to love me in his mind. He had his own identity issues surrounding what he had, quote unquote, amounted to as a man. He was working at a factory, cutting out foam that went inside of furniture. That wasn't his dream. That wasn't the vision that he originally had for his life. And so somewhere along the way, he felt like he had to settle. And so in his mind, he wasn't going to let his son settle. And if he saw some sort of natural gifting at me being good at this thing, he wanted to push me as hard as possible. But because he didn't have a great dad, his dad beat him up all the time when he was a little kid because his dad was Mm. an alcoholic. So he didn't know how to express that love. He didn't know how to celebrate and encourage while also giving me constructive criticism. All I heard was, you're not enough, right? So then you come home. My mom cooks a late dinner after these shows. We get home. And because it's the South and we're in the Bible Belt, it's a religious family. And we pray before every meal. And my dad starts every single prayer exactly the same. Dear Heavenly Father. And I still remember when he said those words, my mind would always sort of check out and wander off to a place of asking like, okay, hold up. If God is my Heavenly Father and I'm not enough for my dad, how good do I have to be 
for this like divine being of the universe that apparently created all things. And so I got pretty cynical early on thinking there's no hope of me ever measuring up to any of this. So why should I even try? But despite having that feeling, I clearly continued to try to measure up. And so I think that was the beginning. And there was just so many experiences from, you know, abuse in my childhood from a family mentor. Um, I struggled with some sexual abuse from a family friend that we thought cared about me. And that person was supposed to be a mentor to me and take me to new places. And when you have an experience like that, what I needed was healing. What I needed was counseling. What I needed was a caring adult to come alongside of me and help me make sense of that experience, even though it was difficult to make sense of and process. But instead, I was a kid who was trying to measure up and be enough. And so I did what magicians do. Uh, I kept it a secret, right? And magicians are really good at keeping secrets. And so all of these experiences that I had that continued to break my narrative, instead of coming out and getting healthy and having corrective experiences associated with those you know, sources of trauma, I just buried them because I was trying to be enough. And I had to create this image of this, you know, perfect person who had what it takes and was the man. And so I set off on a mission to prove that I was to my dad, to God, whatever that meant to me at the time and to everyone else. That was a long answer to your question, but I think that's, that's when it began, but it, it wasn't just a singular source. It was that experience with my father and then all of these additional experiences did nothing but just get reinterpreted through that broken narrative, right? And so there was a little bit of confirmation bias that kicked in and it just affirmed the broken narrative. It reaffirmed the lie. And the more experiences I had that affirmed the lie, the harder it became to be open to the truth. Mm. What was the catalyst or what helped you sort of begin to start unpacking all this? I mean, you just had so much awareness about things that happened early on that yeah. were, I'm sure stuffed down. Yeah. It was, it was that, that transition from 21 to 22 and kind of feeling like I had it all to losing it all, you know, cause it's pretty humbling when you can no longer keep up with the show, right? If the show is look at this nice house and look at these celebrities that I hang out with and look at these expensive jeans that I wear and when you can't afford those things anymore because you're in debt up to your eyeballs and you can't even keep up with your minimum payments, you got to sell everything. You got to move to a new place. I remember being feeling so ashamed. And this is not something I've, I talk about, I've talked about publicly, but I remember there was this particular street. There was two ways to get to our house. One was like the direct path. And that street included being exposed to a lot of other properties that also weren't as nice. There's garbage laying around, cars up on blocks, you know, images that remind me of the town I grew up in. But then there was another way to get in where you could take like the nice street that was sort of pristine with nice homes and a better part of Franklin that read to, led to the elementary school. I remember when we first moved to this house, before we even started renovating it a couple of years later, I remember like being on the phone with people, be like, oh, you're going to come over. It's like, oh, I just want to drop this thing off. It's like, okay, well, you know, the, the easiest way to get there is to actually turn on this street. I know when you open Google Maps, it's going to send you this way. And I was like, gosh, how insecure was I? Because I was so embarrassed that I had sold all of my nice things and was now living, living in this new place. Mm -hmm. I was still trying to, to uh, maintain those perceptions. Um, and that's just, it's crazy to me and sad when I look back on it. But now I have compassion for that little insecure kid that was inside of me. It was just trying to prove that he was enough. But when you go through that kind of experiences, it forces you to take a step back and go, okay, what did I miss? 
or how in the world did I get tricked into believing all this stuff that wasn't true? And that was one of the biggest epiphanies for me because there's irony in the fact that the same lies that I had been tricked into believing, when you unpack those lies and ask how that happened, they were based on the same principles of deception that I was using as an illusionist to create illusions on stage. And those principles of deception are universal. And that not only helped me understand how I was led into believing the things that I was believing, it allowed me to spot the lies. It also gave my work a sense of meaning and purpose because all of a sudden, instead of me being this illusionist who was about entertaining people and getting applause and approval, all of a sudden I realized I have what could be the greatest tool in the world to help other people come into an understanding of how they get led into getting tricked to believe the things that they believe. And so I started asking questions about what it would look like to approach my work through that lens. And that was pretty cool. That kickstarted a whole new season of life and work. I appreciate what Lindsay asked about the catalyst, because sometimes there, there's always a catalyst that, that kind of drives the why. But a lot of people haven't unpacked that or gone back and done a timeline. To, and boy, you, I just really want to affirm, however, your process, your work, whatever you did to go back in, in, into your timeline and to get so clear about what's driving you. Cause that's, a, that's something, as you know, we do at onsite, we help people with our own process to help people go back so that whatever might be historic is not holding them back from being who they really truly are. But you just did a beautiful job of reflecting that. And uh, I make up that when I hear it, I get reaffirmed that everybody's backstory deserves to be told and shifted what parts of it that didn't belong to them. Uh, but there's so many people I hope that are listening today that just got permission by hearing how clear and meaningful that you took us back and and now got us to current time. So I just wanted to affirm you on that and say I really value it. Uh, and it was really impressive. And I can tell you've done a lot of work to be able to go back and speak into it in that way. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, it's taken me a long time to realize that I'm not an illusionist. I'm a storyteller who happens to know how to do illusions uh, and tricks. And that sort of deep dive into understanding storytelling is really what allowed me to learn how to excavate those parts of my story and get to the parts to try to make sense of them. Because it was really like, man, I have so much in my story that's fascinating to me. And as I searched my own story, I learned about the power of narrative and like, I don't, I don't, why don't I understand that part of my story? I need to learn to make sense of it and unpack it. So it was really my desire to become a better storyteller that drove me to understand. And yeah, that led to a lot of a lot of work that was staring me in the face. <laughs> well, there's always work, always more to do. That's the fun oh, part. Right. Uh, but that gets that gets us kind of to where we are. Um, and I know we missed some parts there from the story up through what you've been creating. I had the opportunity to speak at your event a couple years ago and was just so moved by it. I mean, it was just beautiful. And uh, you had another one of our team members come out and talk this year virtually. So uh, it's just been so fun being a part of what you've created there with story. And then now you uh, are in this new exciting season where you've taken part of your process and written a book about it that just released. And um, I was thrilled the day that I saw, I think you shared on Instagram that it was on a list right up there with the big books. And I was like, Go Harris. I was so excited for you, especially in a season like this, trying to release a book now. But what's that process been like? Tell us a little bit about why you chose to take this and, and write it and then and share it with other people. 
Yeah, man, I don't even know where to begin on that. It's a hard process to remember all of the milestones of because everything about this year has been such a blur. It certainly has not been what I imagined. I don't think this year has been what any of us have imagined, but you know, I was looking forward to being out on the road and meeting people and creating experiences and rooms, having these shared transcendent experiences that I love so much to create. And none of that has happened. So, um, in a way there's also been an adjustment of expectations and trying to come to grips with, you know, this being what it's supposed to be instead of what I wanted it to be. But the book itself, that process, it just, you know, there's, there's a Maya Angelou quote that you're probably familiar with. Uh, I don't remember it exactly, but she basically talks about how there's no greater burden than an untold story inside of us. And I realized that there were still some stories in me that needed to be told. And that was really the catalyst, I think, for the book is I was looking at ways of getting some of these untold stories out there via writing and via film. And so the book was a key part of that. And I got to credit to where my editor, Stephanie Smith, she was really the one that just stayed on me constantly going, Hey, when are you going to write that book? It's like, I'm working on it. It's like, you've been saying that for two years. And I think I'm allowed to share this story. I've never shared it publicly, but I never, I never wrote a book proposal. I never went out and tried to find a publisher stories that are meant to be told sometimes, not always, but sometimes that's just the way it works out. They demand to be told. And mm. so she sent me a letter and said, we really want you to write this book. Here's how much we believe in you and this idea and how much we want the world to hear this message. And so at that point, it's like, how I don't, I think I'm just supposed to write this thing. <laughs> and so I did. Um, I don't know if there's much more to it than that. I was supposed to write it and I did. So it's more of an act of obedience, I think, mm. to the magic that's whispering to you that you're supposed to respond to. And so now it's out. It's called The Wonder Switch. Uh, I've been blown away by the response. Yeah. And just the letters and emails that I'm getting from people saying what a profound impact it's having on changing their ability to see more clearly. And at the end of the day, I think that's what wonder does. Um, wonder gives us permission to believe in what we have yet to see. And it reminds us that seeing is not always believing because our senses and our feelings can easily lead us astray. But believing is seeing because what we believe has the power to change what we see. So sometimes we have to believe in something before we can see it. And hopefully the book is giving people permission to believe. Hey friends, Mackenzie here. Hopping in to quickly tell you about our newly re-released digital course, 30 Days of Living Centered. If you've ever felt like your days are running you instead of the other way around, you're not alone. We created this course for anyone who feels off balance and unsettled by the busyness of life. The self-paced program is an invitation to establish daily habits and practices that keep you grounded, even when your circumstances aren't. When you sign up, you'll receive 30 days of video teaching, short reflections, and practices designed to put the topic into action. We've even built in daily reminder emails to keep you accountable. To celebrate our podcast launch, we're giving you 50% off when you use the code PODCAST. Head to onsiteworkshops.com slash 30 days to learn more. Now, back to the interview. One of the um, things that I have loved getting to know you is just watching how you and your wife, Kate, like are such a team. Mm. And sort of when you were reflecting back on your story earlier, it just made me so curious about what was it like to sort of live through 
such a dramatic transformation with somebody at your side? And how was she sort of supportive in that process? And how have you supported her in her process? Yeah. I mean, it's been a roller coaster ride. Um, marriage is hard because relationships are messy, right? And so, yeah, I mean, our first year of marriage, I had no idea what I was doing. I was still pretty obsessed. You were 19? 21. 21. I married at 21, but we, we met pretty young. We met when I was 17. Um, she was 17 as well. And so we had those four to five years of getting to know each other. Finally got married at 21 against the wishes of both of our parents, uh, both of which were saying, you guys are too young, but I was traveling full time and I was ready to travel with her full time. And at the time in that season of life, that was pretty taboo. And so we decided, man, the only way we're going to get to go travel the world together uh, with the blessing of everyone around us is to like, let's just go ahead and get this done. <laughs> so we got married and um, that first year was pretty rocky and I was at fault for most of it just because I had, I had no idea how to, how to shift my focus away from performing for everyone else and learn how to not perform for her, but learn how to physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally be present. Uh, I just didn't know how to be. I was a human doing, not a human being at that time. And so we got off to a pretty rocky start and went to some counseling, learned how to better support each other and realized, man, when things got hard a year later, even harder, because when you're trying to dig out of debt, that's messy. And so we had to learn how to work together as a team. That was the way for us to get through that season uh, and not just thrive, but honestly, just to survive. And so I think that was probably the beginning of it. No one's really asked me that question. So now I'm going back into that part of my story and trying to make sense of it going, what is that a product of? And I don't know if I'm, I'm super clear on it. I just know there was this, this deep commitment and an understanding that, gosh, when the, when the emotion or feeling of love fades, what we're left with is love is a choice and we got to wake up and choose to love each other, even when we don't feel like it because that's how we're going to get through this. And so all we had was each other. And so I think we learned to, to choose to love each other better and more deeply. And then that season also, I think, brought on a lot of vulnerability. You know, we had to learn how to be vulnerable with each other, which then enabled us to allow each other to be fully seen and more fully known, which I think also brought us closer together. Those are great questions. I'm just sort of shooting from the hip here. But I think a lot of it was the season and situation that we found ourselves in. And it was, man, this isn't going to work unless we dig in and dig deep. And if we give up and throw in the towel, walk away, we're toast. And so <laughs> we had no choice but to draw close to each other. And now, you know, 15 years later, gosh, it's my marriage with Kate, our, our connection and relationship with each other is one of the greatest blessings in my life. Yeah, she's my best friend and my greatest encourager and source of support. And hopefully she would say the same. I know she would. Yeah. I don't know if I really even answered your question. <laughs> no, you did. I mean, I think you've walked through a lot and you've had to do it together. And so. Yeah. Hon honesty, honesty, vulnerability, and trust. You know, we've got to, we have that for each other. It took us a long time to develop that. And out of that comes an opportunity to choose integrity on a regular basis. And it's like time. It's, it's a almost non-renewable resource. And once you spend it, it's hard to get it back. And so we work hard to maintain each other's trust and 
continue to choose integrity and allow ourselves to be fully seen by each other so that we know how to support and love each other well. That seems like a, a pretty good ecosystem or environment to bring some kiddos into. And uh, I know you talked a lot about the impact of your dad and that that was generational, you know, kind of came down. And I really love when at some point somebody says, I'm going to shift generational norms and try to create something new. Uh, you know, I think I would hope that all of us make our previous generation a little better than the last. I think that would be the goal. But how have or are you doing that as a father? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, I'm trying to lead with making sure that my son knows that he's enough for his dad and that I don't love some sort of future version of him based on what he accomplishes or what he turns out to be, that I love him now as he is. And that love is not something that has to be earned from me. And now I know, like, I didn't have to earn my dad's love. It was a free gift. He just didn't know how to express it. And so I'm trying to just ensure that I express it well to my son. There's, I think, lots of ways that I attempt to do that. One of the things that is super practical is just at night when I tuck him in and we read books or say prayers, do all the bedtime activities, before I say goodnight, I just constantly remind him, Jude, I love being your dad. Uh, I love you so much. And early on when he was a little boy, I don't know what made him do this, but it, you know, he didn't know how to communicate it properly yet. And so when I said, Jude, I love being your dad, he goes, I love being your Jude. And now he's seven and he still says that. Come on. And so every night, hey buddy, I love being your dad. I love being your Jude. And I'm like, how long is that going to last? I hope it lasts for a long time. <laughs> Eventually that'll be cheesy to him. But for now it's, uh, yeah, it's just a reminder. I remember another thing we watched, we watched Alice in Wonderland together, the Linda Wolverton, Tim Burton version. And there's that great line in Alice in Wonderland where, you know, at the beginning of the movie, Alice, she has the dream again. She goes to Wonderland. And she comes out of the room and her dad's in this, you know, big meeting with these high profile business elites. And he goes, you had the dream again, didn't you? And he goes into her bedside and she goes, yeah. And she goes, have I gone mad? And her dad leans in and smiles and says, yes, but I'll tell you a secret. You know, you're entirely bonkers, um, but all the best people are. And after we watched that movie, I realized like, what are, what are all the things that other people that may not be at their best selves, what are they going to say to my kids during those times? Are they going to call them names? Are they going to try to label them? Will they call them weird? Probably. And so I just decided I'm going to get ahead of the trend. And so I will look at my kids every now and then I'll be like, you're such a weirdo. And then they'll smile and go, but all the best people are. And so I'm trying to oh, it's so great. embrace those differences and just understand like, Yes, you're entirely bonkers. You've gone mad. You're a total weirdo. Like all the best people are. And I think that's where our magic lies. Like all the magic that my kids have to offer the world and all the magic that they have the potential to see in themselves in the mirror, that comes not during the times they lean into the status quo and try to look like everyone else and be like everyone else so they can be normal. But when they embrace their weird, um, when they embrace their uniqueness. And so I'm just trying to get ahead by going ahead and call out that magic and uniqueness now and help them understand that it's true of everyone because all the best people are. So I think a lot of it is just in the way I'm trying to communicate to them, but it's a fine balance, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm highly driven. I have high expectations because I think, you know, life can be rich in experience and is meant to be lived fully. 
And so to do that requires a willingness to shatter the illusions and step into living a life that is centered in abundance, not in the stereotypical ways that most people think of when I say that word, but just rich in magic and experience and depth and meaning and purpose. Well, to do that requires having high expectations for my children while also continually expressing unconditional love. And that's a fine tightrope to walk, I think, because I think I, I could take the generational uh, trauma and carry that in by flipping it and saying, Jude, you'll always be enough no matter what. But then he ends up living his life feeling like, you know, because grace is endless, I can do no wrong <laughs> in the eyes of my father. And so there's expectations there that are different as well. So it's a fine balance, I think. But I think a lot of it for now in this season is about communication and making sure that my actions and what he feels and sees by my example supports the things and the words that are coming out of my mouth. I love the way you describe that in terms of it being a fine line and I can totally relate and had some of those, having some of those very conversations with my son right now and we'll soon do have them with my daughter when she gets a little older and I can relate to blurring and crossing over that line one way or the other. And I think the thing I'm most thankful for or proud of as a, as a dad is the curious curiosity, the empathy and the willingness to take a step back from my current reality and check on that and just say, Oh, it probably blurred that line or went a little too far based on his response. And I get to go back and repair that. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've, I know the repair, whether it comes from ourself, our own narrative, or sometimes we get that from the people around us. Sometimes it's not necessary for us to clear it, but uh, when we do, it's just a double win. But I did a lot of that early work with my own where I repaired some of my own narratives. But then now my father in his seventies, I think is doing his best parenting mm. with me and he's letting me know things he would have liked to have done different. And it's, oh, it's, uh, that's a gift because it's allowing me as a parent to see, I don't have to wait until I'm in my seventies to let my son know that I can let him know now. That's amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. It's tough. It's, it's, it's complicated to a young mind to hear that's not acceptable behavior, but still understand that you as a human being are still acceptable to me as your father. So for you as you know, in this season of life to have your dad still expressing things like to you. That's a gift. That's incredible. We could, we could talk more about that. And I know we've got to kind of wrap up here soon, but um, you've been generous with your time, but not only that acceptable and accepted is such an interesting dynamic to try to work out relationally too in friendships and marriages is how do you, it's basically your, your, uh, slow walking us back into boundaries and that whole idea, which we don't have time to unpack, but I wish we did. Maybe we'll do a part two with you at some point yeah, me too. Cause I think it's not just parenting. Like all my, all my leadership struggles in my life have been rooted in this, these same issues surrounding my identity, you know, to have conversations with people on your team where you have to come at this and say, this behavior, these choices aren't acceptable, but you are. And so how do you critique the work and not the person? It's all just messy stuff, but Super, super, valuable, super valuable. Yeah. I know, I know, um, Lindsay's probably got a, a question or two here to, to close us out, but I just had one more that, um, I wanted to see if you'd be open to taking us back to let's imagine that kid in the tuxedo that 
just got the standing ovation and he's walking off stage and dad is side stage, but now you're dad. And what message would you have for you in that tuxedo coming off stage? Yeah. You know, I would say, I know you're scared. I know you don't feel like you're enough, but you are. I would say, you know, everything is about to change in your whole life. And you're not even going to be able to see it coming. You have no idea what's coming down the pipeline. And that even though you're not equipped to respond to it all, you have what it takes. You're enough. You're worthy of love and belonging. Even during the times that you don't feel loved by people who claimed or said, or were supposed to love you, you're worthy of belonging even during the times that you don't fit in. I mean, I have a lot to say to that little kid because it's, it was a long time ago and there's a lot of lessons learned since then. <laughs> it's lots of mountains and lots of valleys, but I think the biggest one is just that he would understand that he's enough, not because of what he does, but just because of who he is. That, and so if, if, um, if you're listening to this, I hope that was healing for young Harris and, uh, but it also was impactful for me. And so I hope that if you could put yourself in whatever that scenario was for you, where you need to walk back into your story and be side stage for a good moment, a bad moment, a challenging moment, and you get to craft a message that you should have and always needed to hear and make part of what we just heard yours. Uh, because I do believe that we all, we all deserve it. Anyway, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So Harris, I know for me and for a lot of people this year has been sort of hard. And there are days where I certainly wake up feeling a little more skeptical and a little more cynical and sort of missing the magic and wonder. What are some practical things that you do just to help yourself feel more centered and full of wonder? Yeah, I think there's two parts to that question. Uh, one is how do we decrease cynicism? And the other is how do we increase wonder? And they can kind of happen simultaneously. But, you know, our mutual friend Bob Goff says that cynicism is just fear posing as confidence. And I love that, which means that when we're cynical, it really just means that we're scared. And when we're scared, I think that's an act of human imagination. I think of worry and anxiety as a misuse of imagination. So I think there's destructive imagination and positive imagination. And the thing that toggles how we're using our imagination is what I call the wonder switch, which is why that presence of wonder is so important. And so if we want to live a life of wonder, if we want that to center us and ground us, we have to get really clear about what magic is. You know, to me, magic is the woods. Miles and I were joking around about that at the beginning of the interview. There's something about being out in the forest and the quiet and the dew and the, the fog rolling in, whatever that experience is for you. Also spending time with my kids, the way that they remind me of what real magic is, the way that we play together, seeing the world through their eyes. Um, you know, if we can define that magic, then we can intentionally design a life that allows us to experience that magic on a more regular basis which then allows us to awaken our wonder and live in what scientists are now referring to as positive awe states. You know, positive awe states, it's sort of a new field of study. Um, 
but neuroscientists are finally getting around to studying things like awe and wonder because I think they can feel a little bit soft or woo-woo to some people, especially when I go and talk to high-profile brands and companies about things like wonder. They're like, wait, let's get back to like financial benchmarking or you know, leadership or marketing. And so when you talk about wonder, you're like, oh, I just don't know how I feel about this. But you know, being in a positive awe state can what the studies now show can shift the physiology in our bodies so much that it can decrease stress, which therefore boosts our immune system. Positive awe states show an increase in cytokines, which essentially decrease chronic inflammation in our body. A positive awe state can make us feel more connected to other people by helping us realize that we're a small part of an equal whole. It can increase our vulnerability and empathy, increase our ability to connect with other people on a heart level. These are pretty amazing things. And so how do we find ourselves in those positive awe states more often? It's by coming in contact with real magic, which means we have to design a life that has enough margin, design a life that holds enough space for that magic. And so if magic is being in the woods, I have to create margin for that. If magic is playing with my kids, I have to create margin for that. And that sounds simple, but it's, it requires a lot of intentionality. It's difficult to execute in a year where human beings are so busy and distracted. And I think if we can do that, if we can center our life around the experience of magic, we can find ourselves in that positive all state more often, keep the wonder switch turned on, which then goes back to what you were asking about. If the wonder switch turns on, then we'll use our imaginations more often to create and dream and innovate instead of misusing them to constantly fast forward in the story and ask her the question, what happens next with something negative and spend all of our time worrying and being anxious. Because the imagination is really just a virtual reality flight simulator for the future, right? It's always going, what happens next? What happens next? What happens next? And so we want to use our imaginations to fill in that blank. What happens next with something hopeful and beautiful? And we can do that if we're grounded in magic. All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much uh, for spending time with us and sharing with our our audience. We're uh, thankful for the relationship and the friendship and the overlapping passion it seems like we share. And I'm really glad you put your work out into the world through Wonder Switch. I don't think I need to, I don't need to sell this book for you because I think you just did, uh, just sharing your story with everybody. But if you haven't uh, seen it or gotten the book yet, um, do yourself a favor and go do that. We'll be carrying it here in our bookstore on campus. And so if you're here for one of our workshops or programs, make sure and stop in and check it out. But if not, you can get it anywhere because it's all over the place and definitely worth the investment. But thank you, buddy. We appreciate you. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Miles. And thank you, Lindsay. It's an honor. Love you guys and what you're doing. Always proud to support all things on site. So thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.